You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss ghosts, greed, and more conversations with dogs. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Mystery Still Unsolved. I am so excited to be back here in my little walk-in closet with all of you chatting about unsolved crimes. This week, we will wrap up our conversation about David Berkowitz that we began last week. If you missed last week's episode, we covered Season 1, Episode 6 of Unsolved Mysteries, hosted by the love of my life, Mr. Robert Sack. It was a two-parter, which is why we are now covering the second half. Normally, if you've been following me for a long time, you know this, I don't cover two Unsolved Mysteries episodes back-to-back unless we're covering, like, Unsolved Mysteries, like, the Netflix volumes. Um, Because this was a two-parter, I didn't want to leave you hanging for weeks and weeks on end. Speaking of Unsolved Mysteries released by Netflix. I'm sure you've all heard the news, but if you haven't, allow me to enlighten you. Netflix is coming out with their third volume that they will be releasing next month. I am so excited to see what cases they cover in their newest volume. I hope there will be updates as well. So this means we have a very exciting lineup coming out in the next few months. So next week, It's the first week of October. We will begin discussing our Halloween series where I will discuss infamous unsolved crimes that have been turned into movies. Thank you to those who left a suggestion on my post on Instagram. If you haven't yet, but you know of an unsolved crime turned movie that you'd like to hear me discuss on the podcast, pop on over to my Instagram at mysterystillunsolved and leave me a suggestion. After October, we will cover the new cases from volume three of the Netflix original series Unsolved Mysteries. That's a lot of fun announcements, right? Also, don't forget to check out my website, although I certainly do. Um, It's www.mysterystillunsolved.com. One of these days, I know I'm going to get to doing something fun with my website. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's going to be my 2022 New Year's resolution. I don't know. Also, let's address the elephant in the room, shall we? Uh, Yes, I know. I sound a little weird. I sound a little stuffy. I'm getting over something. Um, I almost considered not doing an episode this week to recover, but I knew I couldn't ghost you all like that. So here I am. It may not sound pretty. It may not be my best work, but I showed up. So I hope that that counts for something. Do you see what I do for you people? (laughs) Just kidding. I'm actually happy to do it and honestly has kept me distracted and it gives me something else to think about. So totally fine. So without further delay, let's get started. My... Boo Robbie is really trying to keep us all on the edge of our seats when it comes to the satanic tease that he hinted at last week, so we don't cover the Son of Sam right off the bat. No. First, we're going to talk about ghosts. Seems fitting with October right around the corner. All right. Robbie, give it to us straight. A hundred years, people have seen and heard things around the general weighing in in Philadelphia that they cannot explain. A number of different ghosts who seem to have an unusual agenda of mischief in mind. Robbie gives us a cheeky little grin before telling us that in Marion, Pennsylvania, there stands the General Wayne Inn. The General Wayne Inn opened in 1704 and is the longest standing inn still in operation today. Apparently, freaking like, 
Benjamin Franklin stayed at this inn, George Washington slept in the room, which is now the dining room, and Edgar Allan Poe even wrote a portion of his famous poem, The Raven, right there in the General Wayne Inn. We interrupt this message for a shameless plug. If you are interested in learning more about the bizarre manner in which Edgar Allan Poe died, please refer to my 14th episode. That's 1-4-14th. That is all. All right, so that's all super cool, but it's not why we're here talking about the inn. No, it's the fact that this inn has a history of hauntings that cannot be explained. It's a place where ghosts check in, but they never check out. Martin Johnson is the innkeeper. He says that they have towels like thrown all over the kitchen all the time. Their vending machines and TVs stop working, um, and they have multiple reports of entities or ghosts. He recalls one time they had an incident involving a Cadillac outside in their parking lot. A valet had walked outside. The owner of the Cadillac that he had collected was already inside and had taken his keys with him. All of a sudden, the Cadillac went berserk. The car turned on, the alarm was blaring, the window wipers were going crazy. This kid, who had just started his job, totally freaked out. But Martin Johnson, who has been the innkeeper for many, many years, assured the kid that everything was going to be fine because weird things like that just happen at the General Wayne Inn. Martin says that he quite enjoys the ghosts. He believes they're more mischievous than scary. He says that he enjoys seeing the clever ways in which the ghosts attempt to frighten them and the guests. On busy nights at the inn's bar, that's when the ghosts really like to have some fun. So, the ghosts will go down the entire length of the bar, blowing on the necks of all the ladies and getting all the men in the nearby vicinity in trouble cheeky little ghosts. It's basically like a a wave of sexual harassment, and I don't know whether to be entertained or concerned that Martin is so entertained by it. (laughs) Martin has never actually seen a ghost. However, he has just seen what they do and their impact on people. Dave Rogers has actually seen an entity at the inn. You see, he was the maitre d' at the time, and he was closing up the restaurant. He was starting on his way out for the night when he suddenly saw a floating head resting on top of a chest of drawers. It had simply appeared out of nowhere. David said it happened so quickly that it didn't register right away. It wasn't until he was walking past the bar, almost out the door, that his brain finally made the switch and processed what he had seen. He ran back into the kitchen, but the head was gone. Other employees have also seen apparitions. One lady heard someone call her name. Alice. Alice. So Alice walked over to where the voice was coming from. She saw a ghostly entity standing on the stairs. He was dressed in colonial army garb. When she asked, can I help you? He simply disappeared. But these sightings are not new to the hotel. No, no, no. There is a historian who tracked sightings that it began over a hundred years ago. Apparently, there is a handwritten account from a woman who was assisting an election in 1878. She went down to the basement to gather more ballots. When she came up, she told the person in charge of the election, I just saw a soldier in a green uniform downstairs. Uh, this was odd to everyone, including the person in charge, so they went downstairs to investigate, and this person also saw the ghost standing by the door of the wine cellar. The uniform was tracked down um, by historians to belonging to a Hessian, or Hessian, which were German soldiers stationed in the area a while ago. Paula, who is a psychic that Unsolved Mysteries hired to explore the inn stopped several feet before the wine cellar room and claims that she had a vision, almost like she was experiencing a memory of a soldier crouched down 
petrified. She got the sensation that the poor soldier had been left behind. Could this be the soldier that people claim they see roaming the basement of the inn? Is it a coincidence or something more? Shortly before this episode of Unsolved Mysteries was aired, there was a Halloween special broadcast done by a local news station about the haunts at the inn. It was very exciting to frequent patrons of the inn, so a crowd gathered at the inn's bar to watch it. As soon as the first scene opened of the hotel, ever so slowly, the picture began to rotate clockwise until the segment was completely upside down. At first, everyone was confused. Like, was this a bizarre way that the editor had decided to put this piece together? They found out later, no, because none of the other stories were covered in that way, and only the patrons at the bar had seen the segment this way. Yes, no one else had experienced the topsy-turvy broadcast in the town. Martin Johnson, who's the innkeeper, says, I don't believe in ghosts, but I know they're here, and while they're here, they might as well have a little bit of fun. And... Martin, 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 I'm sorry to be the one to tell you this, but your statement is contradicting, and honey... I think you do believe in ghosts. It's nothing to be ashamed of, sweetheart, but you do believe in them. That would basically be like me saying, I don't believe in brownies, but I know they're around. It just doesn't make any sense at all, Martin. If you'd like, we can go to a paranormal anonymous group. Hi, my name is Martin and I believe in ghosts. Come on. Everybody support Martin. Give him a round of applause. (laughs) He's in denial of his belief in ghosts. All right. While Martin contemplates his life choices and ideologies, let's move on to our next story. It's about a modern-day Good Samaritan. First, she worked hard as a mother. Then she worked as an advocate for children's rights as she volunteered to work as an attorney for people who might not otherwise have been able to afford one. We're talking about Gretchen Burford. She's a badass bitch who, after raising three kids, decided to go back to school to study law at the age of 41, which should be a testament to all of us that it's never too late to live out your dreams. In 1984, Gretchen had a um, practice in Palo Alto. She specialized in criminal defense juvenile law. She had always been concerned about the underprivileged youth, especially minorities and children. Her daughter, Maureen, says that Gretchen had always been very passionate about justice, and this is why she believes her mother had been so drawn to law. She also is very passionate about representing those who may not have been born with all of the benefits that, say, her own children had had. See, I told you, Gretchen was an altruistic badass bitch. Love her. David Harvey, who was Gretchen's law partner and friend said Gretchen put her heart and soul into defending people. She worked hard with them, not only to defend them, but also in their personal lives, helping them to do and be better for themselves. On February 26, 1988, it was a normal Friday. Later that afternoon, Gretchen left her office to begin her well-deserved weekend because badass bitches work freaking hard. What happened next is uncertain, but thanks to banking logs, we are able to know some of her movements. Police believe what happened next was a random act of violence perpetrated by someone completely unknown to her. Bank records verify that at 6.37 p.m., Gretchen deposited around $400 at a branch bake located four blocks away from her firm. This was the beginning of a nightmare that would last nearly 30 terrifying minutes. You see, when Gretchen didn't know when she was depositing her check at the bank is that she was being watched. Because it's here at this bank that police believe she was accosted by her assailant for the first time. Gretchen was apparently known to keep her car unlocked when she ran a quick errand, something assailants are known to look out for. So please, people, please, if you aren't already, 
lock your door or, you know, leave them unlocked if you want to, if you really feel like you're going to die if you lock your doors, but check your cars before you get in it. Okay. It's so simple. It's so simple. Um, her business partner, David tells us that being so trusting of others was a gift that Gretchen possessed, but it was also her downfall. Authorities speculate that Gretchen was abducted in the bank parking lot. The next 20 minutes are a complete mystery, but this is how investigators believe it went down. They think that the assailant might have thought Gretchen had taken money out of the bank. Gretchen would have told him that she had not, that she had simply made a deposit. Police speculate that Gretchen was used to this type of a person, a desperate individual who was making bad choices as a means to get money. It seems only fitting that Gretchen may have attempted to talk sense into this person, telling them that if they just let her go now, they would receive much less jail time than if they continued any further. It would make sense that she would appeal to him as to what his consequences might be. 25 minutes later, a different bank shows that she attempted to withdraw money from an ATM, but the transaction was aborted when Gretchen attempted to take out more money than she was allowed to at a single time. Police assume that Gretchen might have been doing this to stall. There were two witnesses um, who were in line behind a car that they think they, that could have been Gretchen. Um, so basically they saw like a couple arguing at the ATM. Um, the driver's door was open and the woman was trying to get out and she was pulled back inside. The car left and then several seconds later, Gretchen crashed into two cars. One was parked. Um, after she crashed, she stumbled out of her car yelling, he stabbed me, he stabbed me before collapsing onto the street. This wound would prove to be fatal. Police believe Gretchen caused the accident on purpose as a final attempt to escape her captor. The scene where she collapsed on the ground was only 150 feet away from the drive-up teller where the two witnesses had seen a man pull a woman back into the car before driving off. In the aftermath, two witnesses were able to get a clear and detailed look at her killer. And then he got out of the car, stared me and my friend down, then he turned around and ran. Within two seconds, three seconds, he was out of sight. Since the girl hit the ground, she said she was stabbed. We went for her. What happened? He stabbed me. She was lying on the ground, and I could see a little pool of blood. She was looking up at me. She was saying, I'm dying. I'm going to die. I said, you're just bleeding, and you're, you're going to be fine. So just, you know, relax. And I, I held her hand. She looked up at me, her eyes rolled back and her eyes closed, and it kind of, I guess her life uh, ended right there. When police arrived at the scene, Gretchen had already been taken by ambulance. The officer immediately began processing her car for evidence. There was a hat in the vehicle that seemed just very out of place. It was a paisley fitted hat. They later confirmed after speaking with her children that this hat didn't belong to any of them and very well may have belonged to Gretchen's killer. The next day, the police recovered the murder weapon, a butcher knife with an 8-inch blade. It was found in a driveway one block away from the scene but provided no more leads. Then police began working on the hat. The police in the area were able to determine that only two stores sold such a hat. Even though all attempts to use the hat for evidence have failed, police still have hope that the hat will be the key to solving their case. Maureen, Gretchen's daughter, says that it's ironic that if her mother would have survived this, that this experience probably would not have deterred her from practicing law. She says her mom probably would have continued to help more people for many, many more years to come. I mean, her career was just barely starting. 
breaking news. Do 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 do. In 2008, DNA found in the Paisley hat was matched to a Tyrone Hamill, a convict who was already serving time in a Texas prison. After being confronted with this evidence, Hamill, who was in his early 40s, confessed to the murder in open court to the surprise of all who had attended this initial hearing. Hamel was sentenced to a second life term without the possibility of parole. Um, during the court hearing, he said, quote, I ain't got no written statement. I don't really understand how somebody could show so much compassion. I'm just all shook up, he said, end quote. Um, and then he started again, quote, I don't know if y'all will believe me or not, but I'm crying a river of tears inside. I just want to be a more productive human being in my life. I do feel pain inside, the most extreme pain, end quote. Um, he said this causing one of his defense attorneys to cry. This was followed up by Maureen, Gretchen's daughter, saying, quote, it is my conviction that we never become our behavior, but as adults, whatever we inherit, life can be a journey of transformation, no matter where it is lived, whether it is in prison or at home, she told Hamill. Younger daughter Martha Burford said her mother had become a criminal defense attorney in her 40s, actively seeking to change young juvenile defenders' lives. Gretchen Burford chose to be a child advocate. I've never known anyone with so much life force who could change people's lives. This was the magic of my mother, she said. Most of Hamill's victims are women, she said. The irony is that her mother, a woman, quote, would have helped you and would have tried to turn your life around. And two women, my sister and I, have actively sought to spare your life, end quote. Gretchen Burford did not believe in the death penalty, her family has said. So, even in death, Gretchen's convictions are still sparing the lives of those that she vowed to serve. What an incredible lady. May we all strive to be a little bit more like Gretchen. Then we move on to our next case. Robbie returns to let us know that the, they will now continue to discuss the satanic panic aspect of the Son of Sam, and we further discuss whether it's remotely possible that David Berkowitz would be able to commit these murders without any help. And I'm not talking about the devil or his doggy friend. I'm talking legit, actual people. Mari Terry believes that David belonged to a satanic cult that worked together to terrorize New York City for almost a year. David lived on the seventh floor of an apartment building in Yonkers. Down the street was a street named Wicker. Another person of interest in this case happened to live on Wicker Street, a man named John Wheaties. And I'm not talking about Wheaties cereal here. No, I'm talking about John Wheaties, which was another name suggestion from the son of Sam's demented letter last episode. Do you remember that frat boy testosterone saturated letter filled with those gems of ideas of potential names for these sickos? <sighs> yes. Maury learned that John Wheaties was not some sort of alias, but the actual name of a person who lived on Wicker Street. His name was actually John Carr, but his nickname was Wheaties. From then on, Maury felt like this could not just be a coincidence. John Carr had to be involved in this case, and when, you know, John Carr looks eerily similar to two of the composite sketches given by witnesses. Terry tracked Carr down to North Dakota, and while Carr lived in North Dakota, he did frequently travel to New York, and the dates that he did visit New York coincided with many, many, many of the attacks. Carr was kind of a twisted, mixed-up drug addict. He hung out around people on the other side of the law. Months before David Berkowitz was arrested, John was known to talk to his friends in North Dakota about his friend in New York named Berkey. Hmm, Berkowitz? 
Berkey. So the two definitely knew each other. On February 17th, 1978, six months after David Berkowitz was arrested, John Carr was found dead in his girlfriend's apartment. He had apparently killed himself, or so his girlfriend said during the first interview. The next day, however, the girlfriend had a completely different story to tell. This time, she alleged that John had been murdered. He had been wanted by the police in New York for the Son of Sam killings. She believed this had caught up with him and someone had found him and killed him. Maury Terry learned through interviews more of a picture of John Carr. Many of his friends and associates knew that John had been heavily involved in satanic rituals and activities, including blood drinking, urine drinking, and sacrificing animals, specifically German shepherds. The symbol that David Berkowitz always used to sign off on his letters was also found in John Carr's phone book, scribbled and doodled here and there. One of John Carr's friends, Phil Falcon, says he once walked in on John and his friend in the middle of a satanic ritual in the middle of his kitchen. He saw John and a friend sacrificing an animal at his house. Phil knew that the satanic cult that John belonged to was believed to be one of the more violent ones in the area. Michael, who was John Carr's brother, had apparently introduced David Berkowitz to the violent satanic cult in 1975. And David really Over two years after David Berkowitz's arrest, Michael Carr died in a mysterious car accident. Conclusive proof that David knew the brothers occurred in 1978, uh, where several depositions were conducted. Uh, So David was asked point blank, do you know John and Michael Carr? And both times David said yes. Then they asked, um, were the Carr brothers involved in a satanic cult? And David replied yes. When asked, were the brothers killed to keep them silent? David again responded, yes. Maury Terry believed the deaths of the cars may have been orchestrated by the 22 disciples of hell referenced in the letter and left for police by David. He also believes that the 22 disciples is a satanic group that held rituals in Untermeyer Park, just one mile from David Berkowitz's home. On August 11, 1977, the day after David's arrest, two boys took police out to Untermeyer Park where they showed the officers a mass grave filled with the remains of three German shepherds. After this discovery, officers were able to find 10 more German shepherds buried in the area. This was not the first account that police had heard about suspicious activity occurring in this park. They had many reports of mysterious figures dressed in black robes at night, chanting and putting on rituals on the aqueduct at the park. Maury Terry once got a call from a 15-year-old boy from Yonkers who wanted to know if Terry knew about a satanic cult in Untermeyer Park. So Terry met this 15-year-old, and the 15-year-old proceeded to take him multiple places in the park where rituals were taking place. While the crew of Unsolved Mysteries was filming the sections of the park that the 15-year-old had told Maury about, they were approached by two men who claimed that they saw a ritual take place in 1978. The two boys had been watching TV when they saw headlights race across the aqueducts. They were bored and, you know, teenagers, so they decided to check it out. They grabbed a couple of flashlights and snuck over to the aqueducts. The boys claim that they saw 15 to 30 people. They claim that there was a head chanter who was leading the chant and chanting louder than anyone else in the group. In that moment, they claim they just froze because they had never seen anything like this before. They both decided to just get the heck out of there before anyone saw them. At the time the episode was aired, the DA's office wanted to get a hold of the people who matched the descriptions of the other men seen that final night of terror before Berkowitz was arrested. 
and I don't think that they ever found them. If you're interested in learning more about this case, you might be interested to know that there's a four-part docuseries that was recently released on Netflix on May 5th of this year. It's titled The Sons of Sam, A Descent into Darkness. Lastly, we discuss the case of a man pleading to know the whereabouts of his wife, and it's not what you think. In Jackson, Mississippi, lives 71-year-old Robert Heron, one of the most wealthy men in the state. On July 26, Annie Heron, Robert's wife, was kidnapped. Twelve days later, Robert held a press conference. In this press conference, he addressed the fact that they had learned that his wife had been kidnapped in result of one of his many business dealings. During this press conference, he made pleas that his wife be returned safely. My name is Robert Heron. My wife, Annie Laurie, was taken from my home over 10 days ago. My children and I have done everything humanly possible to obtain her release. Like any businessman, I've made decisions which may appear to others as unfeeling, but those appearances are just not true. Moreover, those business decisions were mine, not my wife. She had absolutely nothing to do with it. My children and I appeal to whomever has my wife that they may say that she may be safe to return to us. Annie Heron's kidnapping was unusual. Um, especially the ransom note. So instead of just demanding money for themselves, they also demanded money for 12 other people who they felt were owed money by Robert. All right, so when Robert returned from work on the 26th, he was alarmed to not see his wife at home. After calling friends and family, he decided to call the police. After calling the police, he saw a note next to his front door. It was a ransom note instructing Robert not to call the police, but... Robert had already called the police. Uh, The demands in the notes were vague, so I'm going to read them to you now. It said, Put these people back in the shape they was in before they got mixed up with school pictures. Pay them whatever damage they want and tell them all this so they can know what you are doing, but don't tell them why you are doing it. Do this before 10 days pass. Don't call the police. And then there was a list of 12 names. Robert had been the CEO of School Pictures, a company that franchises photography studios that take school pictures for students. From 1981 to 1983, in an effort to collect debts, School Pictures had sued 12 people. The 12 people in the letter. The day that Annie was kidnapped, several witnesses had called police about mysterious vehicles driving around in the neighborhood one truck, and one cargo van with Florida license plates. The 12 names were public record, so you didn't have to be one of the 12 people that got sued to know who they were, which unfortunately widened the police's suspect pool. So it's very possible that not even these 12 people, like these 12 people in the letter probably didn't even know anything about a kidnapping scheme. Letters were sent out to the 12 people to see if they wanted anything to comply with the ransom letter. At that point, they didn't get any responses other than a few people who wrote back that they didn't want anything. On August 15th, Robert and his family received a letter from Annie written in her own handwriting. It was basically a letter pleading with him to comply with the demands set forth by the ransom note and to please save her. It meant their mother had survived the initial struggle, but it left them confused about what they should do next, especially since many of the people that they had written to didn't want anything. So, 
Robert found out how much he had won in the settlements of the 12 people from 1981 to 1983, and he sent each one of them a check. The 12 checks combined totaled almost a million dollars. Half of these checks were returned. More than four months have passed from the time that the episode aired that they complied with the demands, but they have not gotten their dear wife and mother back. Robert and Annie's son um, said that it has always been their wish to do whatever it takes in that ransom letter. Um, they just want their family member back, but there's just really not much more that they can do at this point. Breaking news. Do, 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 do. Newton Alfred Wynn, a 65-year-old lawyer from Florida, was arrested for being suspected of being involved in the abduction of Annie. Wynn was also one of the 12 people listed on the letter. Also, one month before Annie's abduction, uh, Wynn had purchased a cargo van matching the description of the van seen in the neighborhood that day. A Georgia woman said she was approached by Wynn and given $5,000 to mail a letter, the letter that the Herons got in the mail written by Annie in her handwriting. Newton was convicted of conspiracy to kidnap, extortion by mail, and perjury. He was sentenced to 19 years and seven months in prison. But what about Annie? What happened to Annie? Annie Heron has never been found. Newton has since been released. I don't understand that. Don't we all think that he killed her? I had to do some more research to see if anything has happened since. Unfortunately, nothing else has really come of the case other than Robert passed away two years after his wife's kidnapping. Um, I did read that Newton served 16 years of his 19-year sentence. He was then released in 2006, and then he died in 2012. And it seriously makes me so mad to think that he lived six years of freedom, getting away with murder, basically. Um, I also read that in the final letter from Annie, she said that she needed Robert to comply with the demands of, quote, these people, end quote, because they were threatening to confine her to a cellar with only a few drugs of water. So, who are these people that she refers to? Because so far, only one person has been indicted for being involved in this crime. Also, looks like if we are going to find poor Miss Annie's remains, somebody's going to have to start checking cellars. Annie's case really is so devastating because we just don't know what happened. I'm infuriated that we were not able to get more information out of Newton while he was in prison, but I'm infuriated, but I'm not shocked. Um, if he really was a lawyer, um, I'm sure he was disbarred after this whole thing, but he knows, or he knew, I guess, that he stood a better chance keeping his mouth shut. I am just shocked that even after all this time, we still don't know anything. It's very sad. Um, what do you make of these cases? I'd love to know what you think, so be sure to go to my Instagram at mysterystillunsolved and leave me a comment with your thoughts, theories, and opinions. I would love to hear them. Also, if you would like to send me a listener suggestion, I would absolutely love it. They're so helpful to me. Uh, do you want to know more ways that you can support my podcast? Of course you do. Visit my website at www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Tell a true crime loving family member or friend about me. I know you all know some true crime addicts. We all do. So tell them all about me. And the best way to support this podcast? Well, it's to join me here next week, of course, where we'll discover, did anyone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved. <laughs>